Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Abstract. It's Derek here. Hi everyone, it's Dan. How's it going, Dan? It's going pretty well. I'm uh, bracing myself for a gradual return back to med school in the fall. So they have us uh, remembering which way to put in the stethoscope into our ears. That took a little bit of thinking and uh, what side of the body the heart's on having to start that process. Yeah, that actually sounds terrible to me. (laughs) And it's basically, it's like learning another language and remembering what all those acronyms stand for. I know. It's been a little reassuring that not everything has been forgotten at a high level, but certainly most of the detail is completely gone. (laughs) What about you? I am also planning on going back to med school this fall, but I have made no such preparations. I'm basically just in a state of denial until come like August. That's how I'm choosing to deal with it. That's how I feel mostly as well, but they do force a little bit of reckoning early on, even if this refresher will also be forgotten by the time we go back. That sounds like responsible parenting by the medical school, though. Thanks, Papa Harvard. All right, enough med school talk. So today we're going to be talking about a really cool paper that basically has made the rounds on Twitter and in the whole science world because of kind of like how shocking the findings were. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this paper in part because I can't remember the last paper that Twitter was more excited about. People have gone crazy about this paper over recent weeks. The paper is called Longitudinal Analysis Reveals High Prevalence of Epstein-Barr Virus Associated with Multiple Sclerosis, and this was published in Science in January 2022 from researchers at the Harvard School of Public Health. So Dan, what can you tell us about this paper? So for background, multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disease where the immune system attacks the nerves in our brain and spinal cord, leading to damage of the nervous system. It most often starts in young adulthood and affects more women than men, overall affecting about a million people in the U.S. And there's some decently good medications that are available to treat MS, but still a large burden of disease overall. This is something that we actually talked about on Beyond the Abstract before. We talked about how there were some researchers that created an mRNA-based vaccine for treating and preventing MS, which was really, really cool. But what do we know about what actually causes MS? So we've known for a while that the immune system attacks the nervous system in MS. But the big question is why? And... As with many complex diseases, the answer is some combination of genes and the environment. So for genes, we know that some people are at a higher genetic risk for MS. And in terms of the environment, we also know that infection leading to autoimmunity has long been suspected, and a range of viruses have been seen to have a potential role. One of the leading contenders, though, was infection with a virus called Epstein-Barr virus, or EBV. And something that's important to know about EBV is that it's extremely common. Nearly all adults have been infected at one point in their life. People are often infected very early in life, 
if you're infected as a teenager or young adult, sometimes you get mononucleosis or mono, and some people are infected later. And it then often hangs out dormant in B cells in our immune system and is there indefinitely. I think a lot of people may have also heard of mono as the kissing disease, and that's because we typically think of EBV transmission as occurring through sharing saliva. So, you know, this could be from kissing or from sharing drinks, or if you're a spitter when you talk, you know, all these are potential routes of transmission. If EBV was suspected of being the cause, why haven't we been able to more definitively establish EBV infection as a risk factor? That's a great question. So the gold standard for establishing cause and effect would be to run a randomized controlled trial, or RCT, where we gave some people EBV infection, some people we didn't give infection, and looked to see if they were more likely to develop MS down the road. Unfortunately, this would be terribly unethical. So this isn't an option for establishing causality. So in the absence of performing an RCT ourselves, a good alternative is to look for what's called a natural experiment, which means a group of people that exist already that you could track over time and see when they got EBV infection and see if the rates of developing MS varied as a result of who was infected and who was not. So it's sort of like some natural circumstance is running the trial by itself so we don't have to do it and run afoul of the ethics police. I'm, I'm glad that the ethics are in place because that's definitely a trial that I would not want to take part in, even though, you know, I probably already got EBV at some point in my life. Big kisser, Derek. <laughs> You're exposing me. Where did the researchers even look to find such a natural experiment that, that you've talked about? It came from an unexpected place. It was actually the U.S. military. So the military actually runs basic lab tests on soldiers every few years, and it stored the unused blood from these tests at the Department of Defense. Did not know this, but I guess that's, that's what happens. And this data was covering about 10 million soldiers and something like 60 million vials of blood. And this is exactly the sort of data you'd want for a natural experiment because it's repeated measurements of the same people where you could detect both when they got EBV infection in the blood as well as when they were diagnosed with MS from the medical record. So it's a huge data set tracking blood over time. And this is exactly the sort of setup that you'd want for this natural experiment. I think they collected blood at around three time points when they enrolled in the military, some point in between, and then also when some of these people got diagnosed with MS. Yeah, it was repeated over time, which lets them establish the time point of EBV infection, and then they can associate that with the time of MS diagnosis. 
Yeah. And like Dan said, this is really useful because then we can track over time and, you know, see at what point did they get infected and how on a large time scale this kind of fits into place with their MS diagnosis. So what sort of initial analysis did they run to look at the association between EBV infection and MS diagnosis? For their first analysis, the researchers asked the question, among people who did not have EBV at the start of the study, are people who went on to develop MS more likely to have been infected with EBV in the years before diagnosis than people who did not develop MS. So again, they found a bunch of people who did not have EBV at time zero. Some of those people would ultimately develop MS. Some did not. They did careful case control matching and looked at the rate of acquisition of EBV for the people who ultimately developed MS and the people who did not. And in their data, the answer to this question was a clear association. So of 33 people who ultimately developed MS, 32 were infected with EBV in the years leading up to diagnosis. That's 97%. In contrast, among 90 control individuals, so these are people who at the beginning also didn't have EBV and ultimately would not develop MS, only 51 were infected with EBV, which is 57%. So 97% versus 57%, that's a really big difference. And through fancy statistics, works out to about a 30-fold increased risk from EBV infection to develop MS. That's crazy. Like, that's basically as strong of an association as, like, smoking and, like, cancer. It's huge. It's really strong. So I think the golden cardinal rule of statistics is that correlation is not causation. What analysis did they do to kind of strengthen the argument that EBV infection is potentially causative for MS? One way to strengthen the argument that infection is causal is whether the sequence of events seems reasonable. So for instance, on average, about seven years passed between EBV infection and MS diagnosis. So this tells us a couple of things. First, that EBV infection comes first, which is what we would expect, and a reasonable amount of time before diagnosis. It's not a day before, it's not 50 years before. Secondly, if EBV infection leads to MS, then you might expect to see early signs of damage to the nervous system after infection, but before diagnosis. So again, fitting in this sensible time course. And this is exactly what they saw when looking in serum samples for markers of neuron damage, which were elevated in people who would ultimately get MS after their EBV infection, but not for people who did not ultimately get MS. Okay, so this is where, again, having multiple blood samples over time is really useful because we can essentially form a sequence of events. We can see that infection precedes diagnosis of MS, and we can even see signs of neuronal damage 
appear before diagnosis of MS. So the sequence of events seems logical to me. What other sorts of analyses can they do to rule out confounding factors? So they did a couple of clever studies to try to rule out confounding factors. So the first was actually looking at a related virus, not EBV, but one called CMV. And the idea was that maybe there are unknown factors like lifestyle or behavioral factors that make it more likely for someone to be infected with EBV and to get MS. And to rule this out, they looked to see whether there was an association between CMV and MS because CMV is transmitted similarly to EBV. Um, and they didn't see any association, which suggests, again, that, that it's an EBV-specific effect leading to MS and not something that has to do with your lifestyle or, or any other factors that would make you more likely to get a virus transmitted in this way. And the second was using a tool developed by colleagues at HMS called VirusScan, which is a tool that let them broadly profile the immune system of these individuals to see if it was generally activated against a range of viruses or more specifically against EBV. And it looks like that was the case, that the immune system of the individuals who ultimately developed MS was specifically activated against EBV as opposed to broadly activated or broadly dysregulated. I think it's so cool that these authors thought of using CMV as a sort of control because we know that CMV is in the same family of viruses as EBV. They both belong to a family of viruses called herpes viruses. We know that they're transmitted really similarly through saliva and CMV actually causes a small percentage of mononucleosis cases as well. But in the end, they didn't see any sort of association between CMV and MS. So like you said, this is really something specific to Epstein-Barr virus, which is so cool and just kind of blows my mind. I agree. I think that one of the strengths of this study, apart from the use of this large military resource is really careful experimental design, and uh, which I think was necessary for making a strong causative argument. And um, I think they designed this study overall quite well. To summarize, it sounds like the researchers were able to use this unique military serum resource dissociate getting infected with EBV with increased risk of developing MS. Does this mean that getting EBV guarantees you getting MS or that EBV is the only cause of MS? This, I think, is a critical point. EBV alone does not cause MS. And we know this for a couple of reasons. To start, almost all adults have been infected with EBV at some point in their lives but only a small fraction of adults have MS, so clearly something else is going on. Even in this study, among 90 people who were controls who didn't develop MS, more than half of them were infected for the first time with EBV during this study, 
and obviously none of them developed MS. So I would say that based on this study, it's quite possible that EBV is necessary, but not sufficient for developing MS. In other words, you need to have been infected with EBV to develop MS, but you need other risk factors as well. Those factors might include genetic risk, which has been shown in previous studies. Dan, we know that MS is more common in women than in men. Do you think that this could be involved in one of those genetic risk factors for developing MS after EBV infection? I think it is likely the case that that's true. In a previous episode of Beyond the Abstract, we talked about genetic differences in the immune system leading to differences in rates of autoimmune disease in men versus women. And I think that it's likely that that sort of framework is at play here. That's really cool. It seems like there's just a bunch of different fields and a bunch of different studies overlapping. In this study, did they look at how EBV might increase an individual's risk for MS? The short answer is no. We know that MS is caused by the immune system attacking the nervous system. And we also know that EBV, which is a virus, affects the immune system. So it's likely that EBV does something to the immune system that makes it more likely years later to attack the brain and spinal cord. But at this point, it's speculative. We know that Some effective anti-MS treatments target B cells, and EBV is often latent, hanging out for years in B cells, so there's a correlation. But it's hard to say, and I'm sure that the mechanism of this strong association between EBV and MS will be a hot topic of research for many years. You've said that getting EBV doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to get MS, but from this paper, it seems to be a pretty important trigger for MS in certain individuals. So, you know, how do we go about preventing that? People have tried EBV vaccination in the past with mixed results. Interestingly, uh, our favorite biotech company, Moderna, actually just started a phase one trial for an mRNA EBV vaccine. So it's possible that one day we'll be vaccinating against EBV to prevent not only mono and other diseases that are associated with EBV infection, but also MS. And just to be clear, the Moderna trial is not explicitly geared at preventing MS right now. It's just a coincidence that this paper came out when they were doing their trial, but I think it's conceivable that given that this paper seems to suggest that EBV infection is necessary for developing MS, that maybe one day one of the reasons that we vaccinate for EBV is to prevent MS. And I'm sure that all of our listeners will remember a previous episode of Beyond the Abstract where we talked about an MS vaccine. And in that case, it was designed to reduce the immune system attacking the nervous system. And with this study in perspective, maybe 
vaccination will not be to prevent the immune system from attacking the nervous system, but actually to intervene at an earlier step to prevent BBV infection in the first place, which would have the downstream effect of preventing the immune system from attacking the nervous system. I think that's a really good point. It's important to remember that EBV causes mononucleosis, which if you've ever known anyone who's gotten mono, it's actually a pretty debilitating disease on its own. And a lot of people, it's like up to a month or sometimes even more of just like absolute fatigue and being tired all the time and having to like sleep and stay in bed. So preventing that on its own could be pretty powerful, but now that we know there could be an added-on effect of potentially preventing multiple sclerosis, like that's just even better because MS is also an extremely debilitating disease that that we can't really treat very well. I'm just seeing dollar signs for Moderna, really. That's for sure. Thanks for sharing this paper with us, Dan. It's really cool, and rarely have I seen Twitter get so excited about a paper. This podcast is fully controlled by the Twitterverse. Whatever they want, we're talking about. I think that's the only fact that we've ever really said on Beyond the Abstract. Sounds about right. <laughs> 